0: Father, we thank you uh, for giving us this opportunity to gather and and even to raise our our voices in song together. Uh, It's been a while since we've sung together and and what a delightful thing it is. And and we do sincerely ask that you would open our ears and that you would open our eyes. And Father, that you would help us to see what you intend for us to see, that, that the questions that we ask in our hearts and Uh, The things with which our minds are preoccupied would be the things of you in truth, the things that would speak to what you would have us to know, what you would have us to understand, what you would have our hearts to be devoted to. And so we pray that you will meet each one, that you will knit us together uh, in in the mutual uh, share that we have in Christ, the mutual love that we have Bless our time together. Help us in all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we're revisiting this series, uh, we've seen the way the Scripture opens us up with this idea of sacred space. And it's been a couple weeks since we were together, so uh, I don't know how much you all recall from that, that last time. but. A couple of recap things uh, about where we've gotten to this point. The first is that this concept of sacred space, we, we tend to want to think of it as referring to heaven or where God is off someplace, but sacred space is biblically a creational idea. It has to do with not so much where God is, but how he is in relation to his creation. And even as we look at the creation account, we see that that is the emphasis that the text is bringing to bear. Uh, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this, but when we come to the Bible, we need to we need to approach it through the lens of the author's intent in the original audience. And particularly when we look at something like Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it's very easy for us to ask the questions that are relevant to us in our time, and our circumstance, and And, you know, our scientific uh, orientation, whatever, we hear the question of origins. Okay, the origin of the world is in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, origin to us speaks of science. How were things made? How did God do this? Where did matter come from? Uh, Where did energy come from? But the ancient audience would not have been thinking in those ways. And and I mentioned before that in the ancient world, and somewhat still today, but certainly in the ancient world, uh, the reality of a thing was not its material makeup, but its orderliness, meaning its conformity to the purpose for which it existed. When a thing conformed uh, to its True and essential function. In other words, when it operated properly, it was said to be in order. And that was what defined a thing, not, uh, you know, how much carbon is in it and how much potassium and how much water, the kinds of things that we tend to think about. And so the creation account is very much concerned with those ideas of order and function. So, we saw that even in the beginning of the creation account, the verdict or the assessment of the creation is that it was tohu wabohu, formless and void, is the way a lot of our Bibles put it. But it's the idea of uninhabited and uninhabitable. So, the process uh, by which God begins to deal with this creation shows what ultimately his concern with it is which is ordering and filling, filling itself being the fullness of ordering. So the first thing God does is begin to um, order and, and create realms of existence, inhabitable realms within the created order. And then he begins to put inhabitants into those realms so that they can preside over their own Uh, realm within the creation, the birds in the sky, the beasts in the field, the fish in the sea. And then over all of that, he creates man in his own image and likeness, who is to be the Lord of the Lords, to rule over all of the creation. But ultimately, that man's rule will be God's rule. In other words, man will administer and adorn the order that God intended when he created in the first place. And that's that's a critical understanding that lays the foundation for even when we get to discussing the fall. When we actually understand, okay, what was the fall? What happened? What, what's the significance of it? And unless we understand it in terms of a violation of this fundamental order that God intended and that he put in place, then we can miss the point. We can think of it strictly in moral terms or something like that. So God creates a realm that he himself will be present in and administer his relationship with this creation in and through the unique creature who shares in his own image and likeness. God brings order to the creation in that way, and then he fills the earth with that order by the mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So that's what the creation account wants us to understand, not how did God do what he did, or how long did it take, or when did it happen, but what is the meaning of the creation, what is the purpose of the creation. What is it for the creation to function according to the design for which God brought it into being? And when we start from that standpoint, we begin to understand this concept of sacred space as dealing with, again, how God is in relation to his creation and the centrality of man in that So I say in the notes that, and we considered this the last time, that the creation account emphasizes the themes of sanctuary or God's dwelling place. And sanctuary in the ancient world has the idea as a temple of a place of enthronement. And the ancient Israelites even viewed God as enthroned in the Holy of Holies, right? So sanctuary and kingdom, kingship, flow very tightly together. And then again, man as image bearer, his form unto his function. Form follows function. So the most important thing is the function of man. That's what tells us the meaning of his form as image bearer. He was created as image bearer to be image son. Or as John Walton, for instance, would put it, order bringer. Man is the agency through which God's order, intended order is is implemented and upheld and ultimately consummated in the world. So sacred space isn't heaven where God dwells in some remote sense that we tend to think of. It's as much a man-word and human idea as it is a divine idea. In the divine human encounter, man encounters the truth of himself. In the divine human encounter, man encounters the truth of himself, and through the relationship that results from that encounter, man finds and apprehends his own humanity, both objectively and experientially. This is ultimately the idea that only in knowing, rightly knowing, experientially knowing, uh, knowing in, in a true and living way, knowing God in that way, do we know ourselves. And that will become important also in understanding the fall and the concept of death. Why in the day that you eat of it, you will die. So what I want to do today then is talk about the form. What are the qualities of this uh, sacred space, this this initial creation as God put it into place? We don't see in the initial creation (laughs) the final outcome that God intends, but we see a prototype of it. So even the idea, as you mentioned last time, of getting back to the garden, the the Woodstock song, we often do think, and even Christians think, that that what God is doing is getting us back to the pre-fall state, getting us back to the pre-fall Adam, the uh, pre-fall Garden of Eden. Uh, But that's not really the case. If that were the case, then Jesus, the new Adam, is just the first unfallen Adam, right? So we start in the garden, we start with a prototypical sacred space, but the consummate form that God intends is far greater than that and centered in Jesus himself, and that's beyond where I want to go today. But the initial creation shows us, it gives us a glimpse into what God intends, but it's not the fullness of that. So as we look, though, at this initial creation, there are these two themes Uh, that, that Mark mentioned and that we sang about, these ideas of Shalom and Shabbat or Sabbath. If you will, peace and rest. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit today, because I think even the way we understand these concepts is in a very natural, human sort of way. And so we strip them, or at least deplete them, of Uh, their their true meaning and and ultimately their their glorious significance. But the idea of shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, uh, it roughly translates as peace. That's the way that it's generally rendered in the scripture. But it's more, and you've probably all heard me say this many times, shalom is more than peace as we think about it, which is essentially the absence of conflict. We talk about, you know, uh, peace in the world, peace between countries, peace between husband and wife, peace in families, peace in the workplace. You know, we, we want a peaceful life, but essentially what we're talking about is just a satisfactory management of distance. All human relationships as we know them are managed distance. We talked about that before. And peace fits into that quality as we understand it. When, dis- when the, the fundamental distance between us and other people is managed well, we call that peace. We just want peace. When I was growing up, my, one of my dad's favorite sayings is we need, ju- we need some peace in the valley. Let's have some peace in the valley. Whether it's commotion or you know, fighting or whatever, kids out of you know out of control. Let's have some peace in the valley. But that was it. You know, we just need some quiet. Let's just quiet things down. Well, that's really not the idea of shalom. It fundamentally speaks of these ideas of integrity and wholeness. Integrity is is also a term that we tend to misunderstand. We think of integrity as um, the person who does the right thing or uh, morality or good ethics or whatever. That person has integrity. We generally think of it in in moral terms. But integrity really means uh, the state of being integrated. It has to do with wholeness or authenticity. What you see is what you get. In a sense, integrity is the opposite of uh, duplicity or hypocrisy. And peace ties in with those ideas such that it ultimately speaks to the principle of harmony, creational harmony. In other words, when things are what they were created to be, they have integrity. The fall brings disintegration, fragmentation, the breaking apart of order. God's design is order. And when things are ordered, properly manifesting the truth of what God created them to be, they have this quality of integrity or wholeness. But because God created a, a creation where everything is interrelated, and we talked about that before, a creation that reflects him, and the relationship within the Godhead, because He created an interdependent, interconnected universe in which all things are related to everything else, um, this integrity is a proper relatedness or a harmony. And I, I put this quote in here. This is from Cornelius Planning, a book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, where he talks about, really, the, in, a, in a very more biblical way, the true nature of sin. And he says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the prophets call shalom. It's the Hebrew idea of shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal, flourishing, wholeness, delight. In a shalomic state, each entity would have its own integrity or structured wholeness, but such that they would also possess many edifying relations to other entities. And you see this language in the scriptures, certainly, uh, but we see it being introduced even uh, at the very beginning. Now, not in an explicit way, and I mentioned that here, that shalom or peace isn't mentioned anywhere in the creation account. But it's the implied fundamental characteristic of the initial creation Implied in God's pronouncement that the creation was very good. At each stage of the creation, God pronounces it good, which means fitted, proper. This is what I intend it to be. This thing conforms to what I intend. This thing is ordered. And when he's all done and creates man and establishes this whole structure of Lordship and dominion and interrelatedness in the creation, he pronounces it tov me'ot, exceedingly good. So the creation originated in God and glorifies him in that he created it to share in and give expression to the relational intimacy and harmony that defines his very being. We talked about that last time, this idea of perichoresis or the relationship within the Godhead between father, son, and spirit. Each one mutually interpenetrating the other, each defined in terms of the others, each having the truth of himself in terms of the others, each existing in a perfect interpenetrating circle of love and devotion and submission. And when God created a universe, he created a creation that would reflect that and express that. In that sense, the creation testifies to who God is. So it's in that harmony, that mutuality, that that flourishing of interdependence in a harmonious way that the creation is ordered, that the creation is shalomic. And not unexpectedly, we see this theme of shalom emerging at the center of God's promise of restoration after the fall. If the initial creation was a prototype of God's intent for the creation, then his stated uh, design to renew and restore and consummately perfect all things has shalom at its center. Just a couple of places that we can look at that, and there are lots of them, and I give you different scriptures here, and probably most of you are very much aware of it all these places in which Shalom is at the center, but even looking at the messianic aspect of this, which comes later in, in the development of, of the prophetic record. But in Isaiah 9, you, you have the God saying through the prophet, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. It's talking about the restoring of God's kingdom after the destruction of David's kingdom. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This passage is obviously cited in the Gospels in relation to the significance of Jesus and even the Galilean ministry as the, the place, uh, the centerpiece of his, his own ministry The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation and increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Those things that are counter order, counter flourishing, counter fullness. For every Buddha, the booted warrior in the tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. And then in presenting this same one, this messianic branch of David in chapter 11, uh, the prophet says that when this one arises, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's great. Now that's not a videotape rendition of the future. <laughs> uh, it's poetic language to express the fact that the enmity that exists in the created order, the now under the fall, the uh, the contradiction, the lack of harmony and interdependence that exists within the creation. And we all know that that's the case. All of that will be overdone. The natural order as we know it will be reordered, will be restructured. And all of the ways in which we see the creation functioning within itself and in relation to human beings, we will once again have shalom, the blessedness and harmony of all things. So sacred space then is shalomic space. The creation account shows us that God's intent is a created order marked by shalom, marked by shalom. And this is seen both in the creation account and also in the promise of restoration as God promises uh, to renew and restore. And you see it even in the language of Canaan. Canaan was a kind of prototypical return to the garden, right? And so the promise is that you will dwell in cities that you didn't build. And you will harvest crops from fields that you didn't plant. Right? And there will be peace. Your enemies will be gone. There will be harmony. There will be abundance. There will be profusion. There will be the recovery of shalom. Shalom. So Shabbat or Sabbath flows together with that idea, uh, and you do see Sabbath arising in the creation account. Uh, the Hebrew term is Shabbat, and the basic idea of it is a cessation, or a, a kind of leaving off, or a change in, in uh, uh, activity or orientation. Sometimes in the sense of severing or truncating something or a desisting or reorienting of an activity. And you see it occurring uh, for the first time in the scriptures in Genesis 2 in relation to the seventh day. The seventh day. Mm -hmm. When God had completed his work of creation, he rested and it was day seven, right? This is where we get... Uh, this is the foundation of the of um, Sabbatarian theology and the idea of a one day and seven rest, uh, whether in in a Jewish sense or in a uh, reform sense, the switching of the day of the week, whatever it happens to be. But this is the 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 first place in which the idea of a weekly Sabbath rest uh, comes from in terms of the scripture. But as I say in the notes, the seventh day, if you look at it carefully in in the context, it's not commemorating the six days of creation, let alone is it establishing a Sabbath commandment. It's testifying to a new state of things defined by completion. And one of the things that John Walton, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's, he's an Old Testament scholar, professor, but he deals a lot with the importance of reading the Israelite scriptures through an ancient Israelite perspective. And he talks about how in the ancient world the idea of, of a God taking his rest in his sanctuary or his dwelling place has to do with that God establishing his rule upon his throne. The gods were thought to be enthroned in their temples or their sanctuaries. And so a God taking his rest meant that he had established peace or stability, you know, within his domain, whatever it was. And now he was sitting upon his throne to administer the order that he had brought to pass. And I think the important thing to note about that idea is that an ancient Israelite would not have seeing this in terms of God taking a nap or, you know, God not watching the football game because it's Sunday or whatever it happens to be. Uh, It's the idea of the work of creation, which is the work of ordering and filling, is complete. And now what God is doing is reorienting himself away from the work of creation to the administering of that order. And another thing that's important to note is that in the first six days, the days of creation, if we want to call it that, uh, the text is very conspicuous in having evening and morning, evening and morning. Each of those intervals or, or, you know, episodes of creation is demarcated with an evening and a morning. Why not morning and evening? Well, in the Hebrew reckoning, day a day runs from the evening to the next evening. So it's evening and morning, evening and morning. But you've come to day seven and it's God rests on the seventh day. And that's the, that's all you hear. It's not, and it was evening and morning, day seven. So what's the point of that? I think the point is for the reader to understand that now that God has done this work of ordering and filling, he has taken his reign, which is to taken up his reign which is to be administered through man the image bearer. And he has inaugurated a a state or of completion that is now Everlastingly in place, theoretically, at least there's he, he's entered into the phase of his presiding over his creation, which is to be a new state of things. So the new dictionary of, of biblical theology says the end of God's creative work brought about a new type of time blessed and set aside, presumably in order that what was created could now be. The seventh day was to be a day for fruitfulness, for dominion, for relationship. So the sabbatical nature of the creation, it's not a one day in seven. It's saying that God's ordered creation is a Sabbath creation. It operates according to this principle of Sabbath As a Sabbath reality. So in that sense, what's the relationship between those two ideas? Shabbat or Sabbath testifies to shalom. The two always go together. And if you look at even to this day, you know, when Jews greet each other on the Sabbath, it's Shabbat shalom. Shalom. We have friends who lived in Israel for a while and they sent us Sabbath candles, one of which says Shabbat and one of them says Shalom. The two ideas go together. They imply each other. They're mutually implying. But in the sense that Shabbat testifies to Shalom, what do I mean? God attested to the perfection, the harmony of his creation by taking up his rest, his settled rule as Lord over his creational domain so shalom signifies that it is finished and that completion is proclaimed through shabbat i want you to think about that a little bit and i'm not going to develop that more today but think about what resulted from jesus work of finishing right it is finished his establishing of this order by his own death and in his resurrection and the Sabbath reality that results from that. So God's creation existing in truth is sacred space. This is what the creation account wants us to see. Not how did God do it, when did he do it? How old is the earth? Uh, you know, how could you have plants before there was a sun? You know, all these questions that we want to ask. What the creation account wants us to see is that God's creation. Created to be sacred space is shalomic and therefore sabbatic. It is a creation of peace and rest. And you see that in as I mentioned in Israel's covenant life in Canaan, they were they were exhaustively a Sabbath people. They would obtain their rest in Canaan as Yahweh ruled in their midst, right? And that was attested not just in a weekly Sabbath, but a Sabbath life. You had the festal Sabbaths. You had even the the seventh year Sabbath for the land. You had the seventh, seventh Sabbath, which was the Jubilee. In every way, God was teaching Israel, you are a Sabbath people to dwell in my rest, to dwell in my Shalom, the place of my rule, of my dwelling, you will be a Sabbath people. And just as was the case with Shalom, how it's at the center of the scripture's promise of renewal that will come after the fall, uh, so that promise of renewal also has a focal point in the idea of rest or Sabbath. They will not hurt or kill in all my holy mountain, right? A state of peace, a state of harmony. Not a rest that is cessation of activity, but all things being consecrated to be ordered according to God's order, God's own rule. And for man, his Sabbath is ultimately his fulfilling of his responsibility to be Ruler and order bringer in the world. Sabbath doesn't have anything to do with what we do or don't do. Can I ride my bike? Can I work in the garden? Can I watch the football game? All of those things miss the point. Sabbath is a way of being. Where there's Shalom, there's Shabbat. And where there's Shabbat, there's Shalom. Those two ideas go together in that way. So as we're going to see, when what the fall did was shatter that shalom. It, 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 it fractured the harmony that existed in the creation and set things in contradistinction and contradiction of one another. And therefore, that rest of the creation being ordered according to God's order was broken. And so from the very beginning, we recognize that God's promise to restore and to renew is to recover those things that's what's fundamentally lost and that's what god promised to restore so a couple things for us to think about uh, for our discussion then is what we think how, how we normally think about this idea of of sabbath or rest and peace What do we hear when we hear Jesus say, Peace I give you. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we normally think of those things, and what is it that he's really talking about? What is it that we're expecting? Well, We'll close with that and um, then we'll have some discussion here.